Hi! Welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Alicia. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and women in general. So on today's episode, we are going to be talking about women as medical students. Which is us. Yeah, that is us. <laughs> so we know from episode two that in 1849, Elizabeth Blackwell, Lizzie, our girl, she was the first woman to officially graduate from a U.S. medical school and get a medical doctorate. But the questions still are there. Like, what happened after her? We started with this woman. She was the only person in her class. And we ended up here now, 2020 where women make up the majority of students enrolled in medical school in the U.S., which is pretty great. But how did we get to that point? How did we get to where we are? So today's episode is going to be exploring that evolution a little bit, looking at the past and how we got to today, and maybe we can answer some questions of where we're going from here. But of course, I have to start by asking you, Shar, what do you already know about women as medical students? Um, what do I know? I know that after Elizabeth Blackwell graduated medical school, like more women started going to medical school and there was like women's medical colleges that were like just for women, I mm -hmm. think. And then I know that they closed at like a certain point so there was like a dead zone kind of a woman like going into medicine i know a little tidbits yeah. here and there that's valid because <laughs> i know i'm hosting the episode but to be honest i didn't know really any of this so it was a big learning curve for me and i'm excited to share with you what i know All right, so before we begin, I just wanted to say that today our focus is going to be on the early modern era because we acknowledge that even though there's many ways that you can be a student, like you can be an apprentice or you can just learn by observing and then doing, like, etc. For this episode, we were thinking about quote unquote medical students in a literal sense, in that they are students who attended a school where medicine was taught and then they graduate with an MD. Mm. I also am examining this whole episode from a Western medicine perspective because Charlotte and I are attending American medical schools, and that's where our focus is. But in the future, we're planning to do more Eastern medicine-based histories, so we will be focusing on that down the line. Amazing. I have, wait, I have a quick question. Yeah, yeah. Early modern era, like what's the like time frame for that? Good yeah. question. So the early modern era in European history is from like 15th century through the like 18th century. Okay. So I'm thinking like early modern to modern is kind of our focus here because we're starting mostly with Elizabeth Blackwell, who was 1800s-ish. And then we're going all the way to the present. So we're focusing on this time period that's relevant to American history and medicine. So I wanted to just say that because I'm not really getting into like any ancient histories here. But the first quote unquote medical students, like official women medical students start like came in around the 1800s. So I'm thinking 1800s to present is the time period we're focusing on. 
Okay. Okay, great. Cool. All right. So I know I just said I'm, we're like starting with Elizabeth Blackwell, but actually <laughs> I wanted to really start by briefly introducing someone who I like didn't know anything about because I thought I was going to be starting this history with Elizabeth Blackwell and moving on, but there was someone who came before her. And of course there were many women, but this one in particular, I just found really interesting. And she's a good person to set the stage for medical education and discussions of medical education. So her name is Harriet Hunt. And Harriet was technically a homeopathic healer in the mid 1800s, which at the time, we might think like, oh, homeopathic healer, that's really alternative. But really, Mm -hmm. homeopathic healers were just as effective as regular physicians because modern medicine back then was like not advanced at all. Because in the mid-1800s, germ theory hadn't even been discovered yet, and we were still using leeches to cure diseases. That's how far back this was. Yeah, I've seen things, like just reading about ancient history in general, that talk about how women, medical healers, were better doctors and like medical physicians at that time. Yeah, For that reason. (laughs) Amazing. Harriet was a homeopathic healer, and her and her sister lived in Boston, where they had taken over this medical practice from their mentor, Elizabeth Mott. So Harriet was this amazing healer, and what made her stand out was how compassionate and kind she was, which is a crazy, it was a crazy concept for physicians at the time. (laughs) To be nice to your patients. I know. She was actually mocked for it by this magazine, like American Magazine. In an article published about her and her sister, And the magazine had said that their treatments, quote, seemed to have been largely the application of sympathy, cheerfulness, common sense, and water. What? (laughs) I don't know. It didn't really make sense. But I was like, okay, American Magazine, sue me for feeling better because my doctor actually cares about my well-being. Like, sorry. Right. But these sisters weren't just providing comfort to their patients. They adopted what their mentor had been doing before them, which was actually taking patient histories to better understand what was causing their suffering and then using that understanding to heal them like in a more effective way because that just wasn't a thing before that. That wasn't a thing? Not a thing. Patient (laughs) histories, not a thing. It's like the first thing they ask you in a hospital. They're like, what's your name? Do you have any history of heart disease? Blah, blah, blah. And then you're like, yeah. <laughs> like what? They weren't like any allergies? No, none of that. <laughs> what did you eat this morning? It doesn't matter. <laughs> oh, that was the poison? No, it doesn't matter. We don't care. It's the here and the moment that matter. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So Harriet was a very good healer, and around 1847, she decides to apply to Harvard's medical school because her patients and her sister keep asking her when she's going to apply. But she really has a lot of doubts about her chances of getting in because she knew that the board at Harvard was like super ultra conservative amazing, mm-hmm. and that the school believed it was, quote, immodest and disgraceful for women to talk about the human body. And because of this and just their ultra conservativeness, Harriet was, in fact, rejected at first. But 
she was really motivated. And so she petitioned because she had heard that another woman had just been admitted to medical school somewhere else. Oh, it's our girl. (laughs) It's our girl, Lizzie. (laughs) She's back. She is back. Yes. So Elizabeth Blackwell, who got into Geneva Medical College, was the basis that Harriet used to petition to the dean of Harvard Medical School at the time. Amazing. She was like, these boys voted this other woman in as a joke, so you should do the same to me. Also as a joke, I think it'd be hilarious and we can laugh together. Inside jokes, you know? (laughs) But yeah, so this dean, Oliver Wendell Holmes, that was his name, he allowed her along with three black students, male black students, to attend medical lectures. But again, once the students at Harvard found out, they petitioned against her petition. And so eventually the school just sat down with her and basically convinced her to like bow out and just give up. And then Harvard Medical School didn't admit female students until 1945. Wow. A whole hundred years after Harriet Hunt first petitioned. Actually, the first female medical student at Harvard was an incredible Filipina woman and icon named Faye Del Mundo. And shout out to our friend Joey for telling me about her. <laughs> Love because, Joey. Yeah, it's really funny because he told me and it fit perfectly into this episode. And we'll probably do another episode on her in the future to really give her the credit she deserves. That's awesome. Okay. But This whole thing went down with Harriet, and she was going, like, back and forth with Harvard Medical School, and it was super frustrating, and it just made me think about how she was probably among so many women who wanted to apply to medical school and just had zero chance of getting in. Right. But I feel like it's one of those, like, I'm disappointed but not surprised moments, Mm -hmm. you know? Because at the time, men straight up just believed that women were unfit to enter the medical field. Right. Yeah. Like, in 1873, another professor at Harvard, Harvard is just not doing well in this moment, but his name was Edward Clark, and he wrote that if women were to be educated in medicine, they would end up with, quote, monstrous brains and puny bodies. That doesn't even make sense. He's like, they will become aliens, for sure. (laughs) So when we start medical school, our brains will inherently grow and our bodies will shrink. We will look like Bratz dolls. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's absolutely what's going to happen. At this time, really no medical schools were open to taking women. We know this. Mm -hmm. But here's a question. So we know that Elizabeth Blackwell was able to get a formal ed- medical education at Geneva Medical College. So what do you think the school's attitude was towards allowing women to enter based on what we know about her? Like Geneva Medical College? Mm-hmm. I mean, my, I would expect they would be okay with women, but I feel like that they're not okay. Yes. Go with your gut, Charlotte. You're right. So even Geneva Medical College, like even after they had admitted Elizabeth Lagwell, they said that after she graduated, quote, their experiment on women's medical education was a failure. What? She literally went on to create a medical school in a hospital that still exists today. I know. It's literally so bold of them to say because one, 
they didn't even want to admit her in the first place. Mm-hmm. And two, they knew by the end of her like being there, they knew she was better than them in every aspect. So I don't know what they think a failure is. Okay, so all of this got me thinking. All of this stuff that Harriet and Elizabeth were going through got me thinking. What were these women really missing out on at the time? Like, what did medical education even look like? What did it cost? What did they emphasize in their classes? Like, I want to know. I just wanted to know. So I looked it all up. Here we go. Let me just tell you. So we'll start with the curriculum. So the curriculum was pretty uniform across most schools. It was that you had to be at least 21, and then you would take two years of classes and then have three years of like preceptorship. But I will say the two years of classes were only 16 weeks each. So it's like two four-month blocks, Mm -hmm. and they were... (laughs) They were just the same exact blocks repeated. (laughs) Wait, you had to take the same class twice? There wasn't anything else? No. What the heck? What kind of study (laughs) method is that? Literally the same four-month chunk and twice. That makes negative sense. I know. And then this just, it keeps making less sense. So that doesn't make sense. And then... On top of that, apparently the clinical preceptorship, what would be equivalent to your third and fourth years now, became less and less important over time. So by the end, what? like, you didn't even, it, like, it was your clinical years were optional. What? So you just got to read a book and then you were like, I am now a doctor. <laughs> like, yes, exactly. Yeah. And then to get into medical school, they used to have some requirements. So Some of the requirements were that you had to have knowledge of Greek and Latin and that you had to finish high school, but you didn't necessarily need to have gone to college, though some people did go to college before medical school, but there was like no exams and some schools didn't even require hospital attendance. You know, this is why they used leeches and there was bloodletting because there just wasn't (laughs) any training. This whole thing is zero logic. And then... The curriculum for many schools, they had anatomy as a lab class, kind of, but they had a bunch of problems with having anatomy. So the issues came specifically with getting bodies. So do you have any guesses for what some of these problems were? I know that like stealing bodies was a thing Mm -hmm. for upcoming physicians and scientists. And also there was these two men who worked together to like kill people then sell their bodies to doctors i think i've heard of them that's not where i was going with this but that's fascinating (laughs) but it's insane so yeah bodies weren't available you had to get them bodies weren't available and even if they were available there was no preservatives available no refrigeration possible so the bodies would decompose super quickly and then yeah like you said lack of bodies made grave robbing this huge problem right and then the last thing is like how much does this all cost? What is tuition looking like? So when we think about it for the blocks, there's two four-month blocks. So for eight months of school, plus like maybe three years of preceptorship, if you're going to really specific schools, Mm -hmm. how much do you think it would cost? Because I guess that would be like four-ish years of school, a little less. For like total? Yeah, total. Or like per year. Was it something like, 
crazy like a hundred dollars or you know, is that, is, would, that is that a would low be valid <laughs> it would be valid for you to guess that it's not quite that but you know what you're not that far off so it's a little complicated because until 1860 students would actually just buy lecture tickets directly from the professors instead of paying tuition to the school and the school would pay the lecturers and stuff it was more like buying a movie theater ticket and you just oh, like what? buy a spot in the lecture from the professor and then he lets you stay. That's so weird. Because of this, you basically paid like for each class. And so each class was about 15 to 20 dollars. So for the year, the cost might be <laughs> the cost was like 90 to 120 per year, but then there was also like an initial matriculation fee of 10 to $30 and then a graduation fee of $20. And then this was crazy. So housing was $1 to $1.50 a week. Wow, a big increase. <laughs> and it could get all the way up to $3 in some places. <laughs> oh my God. Imagine. <laughs> So I guess you have to consider inflation yeah. in all of these things, though. And so if we pick like a year in the late 1800s, say like 1880, $1 would be $25 now. Okay. And so tuition for a year might be more like $3,500 plus $75 a week for room and board if you're in the city. So overall, it's maybe like $6,000 a year on the high, high end. Like I took the highest options That's and then so I insane. added all those together and it was $6,000. So wow. how do you, how do you feel about that? Um, as someone who just paid tuition today for medical school, <laughs> I'm really hurt by this. I know. So that's basically like what medical education even look like so we're not it's not very promising these women are missing out on much not being allowed entry but it's the principle of the thing it's the opportunity right. that they're missing now we're going to get into the rise of women in in medicine like actually so time period wise we're still in like the late 1800s we're post elizabeth blackwell and women start getting formal medical education. And this was mostly through chartered female medical colleges like you were talking about earlier. Right. So the Female Medical College of Philadelphia opens in 1850 and the New England Female Medical College opens in Boston in 1852. And then also Elizabeth Blackwell opens her medical school in New York, the New York Infirmary for Women and Children. And mm -hmm. That was the first hospital in the United States staffed by all women, and it opened up this little job market for women in medicine, too. So that was really great because it was a big problem for women physicians to even get employed after get, like finishing medical school, if, if they were able to finish medical school. Right, so yeah. her little haven was actually very progressive at the time. And then by 1861, at least... 200 women had gotten medical degrees. And by 1866, so five years later, there were about 54,000 doctors in the US total, of which 300 were women. Eh, eh, yeah. But eh, it, it could be better. It, it, it's not amazing, but it could be. But they existed worse. at least. Um, but I also think it's important to mention that of those 300 women, only one of them was Black. 
Her name was Rebecca Lee Crumpler, and she was actually a graduate of the New England Female Medical College that I mentioned before. Her existence really shows that representation is terrible at this time. Mm-hmm. And that's... And still. <laughs> and still is, yeah. So we're talking 200, 300-ish women physicians total, um, which is not a big number in the grand scheme of like 54,000 physicians that exist. Right. And adding to that, women physicians were still not being accepted by the larger public or by organized groups like this newly formed American Medical Association. But because of these all-female medical schools and the growing presence of women in medicine at the end of the 19th century, so like end of the 1800s, there were more than 7,000 women practicing medicine and another 1,200 in medical school. So these medical colleges for all women really helped with representation mm-hmm. in the field. I also think that it's worth mentioning that in Europe, it took a little bit longer for women to get admitted to medical school. It happened in the late 1860s, early 1870s in Western Europe. But mm-hmm. even though maybe there were more American doctors before the 19th century. By the early 1930s, close to 20% of doctors in Germany were actually women. And before World War I, the number of female physicians in Great Britain was actually twice as high as in the U.S. Wow. I wonder why. I will explain in a second. But, but I do want to say that in the U.S., only 5% of physicians were female until the 1960s. I mean, I know you just, like, are wondering why there was such a big difference. I am. Okay, so you might think that it's because, like, Europeans had more progressive views of women and they were just late to the game or something like that. But that really wasn't it. (laughs) It was actually because once women were admitted to medical schools, their entry was protected by law in a lot of countries. And so the state kept prejudices from affecting women's ability to advance in the field. And that reminds me a lot of what we talked about with Dr. Lewis in episode four about how systems should be in place so that people's personal biases can't affect other people's lives so drastically. Yeah. That's what these countries were able to do by protecting these women by law. It kept other male biases from affecting these women's chances to progress. And that's why Europe just skyrocketed in their number of female physicians and improved so much faster than us. Yeah, they were basically just anti-discrimination laws for women, which didn't really exist in the U.S. for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Like Title IX. So even though America started sooner with this like female physician movement, European Mm. medical education was still far superior to American medical education. Um, especially for women at that time. So both Elizabeth Blackwell and Dr. Mary Putnam Jacoby, who was this super influential and perhaps like the most influential woman physician of her time, she said, they both said that American education was just not enough and it needed to be supplemented by training in Europe. So they both trained in Europe. And they also stressed the importance of co-education between men and women. But the progress on this front was very slow. So can you think of any reasons why 
men in the medical field were against coeducation. Maybe they didn't want to be like distracted by women or didn't mm-hmm. want to have crushes on the women. <laughs> and then I also think of when we talked about Lizzie and how and also how you said like Harvard had the same idea of they don't want women talking about medicine or just body parts in general. Like it wasn't mm-hmm. proper and it'd especially be improper to do that around men. Maybe so yeah. there's a lot of conflicts. Put this yes, there. I'm just imagining their inner turmoil. They <laughs> are not doing well. Um, okay, yeah, you're on the right track. So basically, there were two reasons. It was that they found women very distracting, but they also found women just inferior. So those oh, don't. Of course, how can I, I forget course. that part? So those were a couple of the reasons why they were against co-education between men and women. But in 1870, the University of Michigan Medical School was the first one to integrate their class and have men and women studying together, which I thought was really cool. But also, it wasn't that amazing because (laughs) (laughs) I shouldn't have gotten so excited because the women still had to take like most of their classes separately. (laughs) What? That's not going at all. I know, but it was like way more advanced than other schools, which were like not even admitting women. Okay. Still, it made me think about how that was how divided it was at one of those progressive schools. Then how bad must it have been at other schools? You know, if this was like the gold standard. Yeah. Well, co-education started to take root in other schools by the end of the 19th century. However, the schools that started letting women in tended to lose their prestige and like then because they would lose prestige, they would stop letting women enter or enroll. Yeah, so it was like a vicious cycle. And I felt like it was important to mention this thing called the Flexner Report because it came up in several sources that I read. This dude, Abraham Flexner, was an educator in Kentucky who released this report titled Medical Education in the United States and Canada in 1910. And he basically described the ideal conditions of medical education, how most medical schools didn't hit the mark on this ideal medical education, mm-hmm. and arguably brought medical education into public spheres and like public discussion so that it can be improved. So he did a lot to improve the actual ideas and creation of medical education. Although Flexner did kind of mention in his report that women should be granted the same privileges as men in medical education, his report also stated that he believed female physician numbers declined because they didn't have the desire to be physicians or there was a lack of demand for these female physicians. And it didn't say anything about how there were fewer opportunities for them. Right, yeah, it was, it was kind like, of backwards. Because some schools were becoming co-ed, women still had this hope that all of these schools were, like, making changes, and so other schools would follow. But it was this optimism, and then the outcomes of the Flexner report that basically led to the disappearance of separate medical colleges for women. Mm-hmm. and the women that used to work at those institutions then became unemployed or took up really only informal positions at now co-ed universities. And so it was a combination of these things that ultimately led to the severe decline of 
female physicians and complete disappearance of all female medical colleges. Mm-hmm. I have yeah. a note. I don't know if you're going to say this too, but I know it was like the same thing for medical colleges that admitted minorities, like male minorities too. There were medical colleges that accepted black men and such. And those disappeared as well. So they're basically like wiping out everyone who wasn't a white male trying to go into medicine. (laughs) Amazing. I love it when they do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But so now we're in that period of lull where there's not a ton of female physicians or Mm -hmm. female physicians like getting trained. And so during World War One and World War Two, there were small increases, but that was mostly just because fewer men were available to take up spots in medical schools because they were off fighting in the war they were off doing their duty and overall the enrollment of women was still quite low but what's interesting is during this time so think 1930s into the 1950s medicine entered what is referred to by some maybe you've heard of this as the golden age the golden age of medicine And it's called this because there was basically a bunch of major advancements in medicine. Things like better surgical techniques, immunizations, drug discoveries, better control of infectious diseases. So to put it in perspective, this is when polio vaccine came out. Right. When antibiotics was probably discovered. Yeah, penicillin was in mass production. So huge, massive improvements in medicine. I think we have to think critically about who this golden age was golden for. Who was it benefiting? Sure, it benefited the public a lot, but who were these people getting credit for? And and of course, it was these white, cisgender men, male physicians who were involved in research and drug studies and vaccine development. And people of color, definitely not addressed here. And for women, well, from 1930 to 1970, so 40 years, Only about 14,000 women graduated from medical school compared to from 1970 to 1980, a 10-year span versus a 40-year span. Over 20,000 women graduated from medical school. Wow. Yeah. So major changes. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts of what could have caused those changes. Like think about the time period that we're entering in 1970s, 1980s. The feminist movement, the women's mm-hmm. liberation. Yeah. So during the 1970s, it was the second wave feminist movement, the rise of affirmative action that led to some major social changes that created this environment that was really beneficial for women. And more women became physicians because of that. So the Equal Employment Opportunity Act and Title IX of the Higher Education Amendments Act were both passed in 1972. And they were major factors in this monumental change. And then for quick background, for those of you who don't know, Title IX prevented federally funded educational institutions from discriminating based on gender. And the Equal Employment Opportunity Act prohibited discrimination based on race, religion, national origin, and sex. And so these opened up a ton of opportunities for women's education, including medical education. And actually, within two years of Title IX's passage, women jumped to 22.4% of students entering medical school. Wow. So they, in just two years. So it totally discredits 
the Flexner report that was like, women don't even want to be doctor. They yeah. don't even want to be in the profession. That's so blatantly like I know. True. I don't know who this Flexner dude is, but I don't know who he thinks he's flexing on. <laughs> oh, oh, got, got it. <laughs> got him. <laughs> oh, gosh. No, but really, these women actually got him because by 1990, the number of female physicians in the U.S. increased 310% from 1970. Wow. And then, of course, according to 2019 data from the Association of American Medical Colleges, the majority of students enrolled in medical school are, in fact, women. Awesome. But I do want to say, before we get too excited, this majority yeah. is not a crazy majority. It's 50.5%. So Man, barely we just the made majority. It by like half I a know. human. <laughs> It's great. Like, I'm so proud that we're the majority, but I think this is just motivation to push harder and make that majority actually something that you can be like, oh, yes, that's definitely a majority. Like, if I saw 50.5, I'd be like, that's half. Like, that's not a majority. All right. And so, with that, we are at the end of our history section officially, and we can unpack a little more about what we talked about in our Feminist Corner discussion. Sounds great. After all of that, what are your thoughts? How do you feel? What are you thinking? I'm honestly like really not surprised by almost all of it. I also like knew a little more than I thought just from knowing about women's history, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of cool. But oh, I was shocked by Europe being being so ahead of the times, mm-hmm. like how it felt, especially because going to medical school in the US is such a thing compared to other countries people definitely go to medical school in other countries and are fantastic physicians but even a lot of them come to the U.S. to do their residencies Mm -hmm. or their post-medical school training so I'm just shocked that I sense like U.S. medical schools have such prestige now that they took so long to get to this point of equality I guess when other schools that wouldn't maybe be like your first thought when you think of medical school we're like okay we're gonna admit women and now we're gonna put these laws in place so that they're actually able to practice and like you actually help them flourish and become physicians. Yeah, definitely. I it makes me think about at what point or was it always this way where US medical schools have higher prestige, but that it wasn't always this way because we know that these women in the US were saying that European medical education was superior. And so it's interesting because I, I don't know like when that transition happened. I'm wondering like, if it's because um, the United States was honestly such a baby country still at that time. Mm. And maybe there wasn't enough foundation for education compared to like, in England, like there being colleges there for like, way longer than, right. you know, in the U.S. Because most of scientific discovery happened in Europe because the U.S. wasn't even created really yet. Right. Things like that. Right. So I wonder if that played a factor. I have no idea. Yeah, maybe. I'm also thinking maybe post-World War II, post-Golden Age of Medicine in Mm -hmm. the U.S., maybe that really turned the tide on Europe's view of American medical education, and that's when a switch maybe happened. So in order to better discuss the first question I have, something I wanted to talk about is, of course, a feminist theory, also a sociological theory called hegemonic masculinity. 
So maybe you've heard of this, maybe you haven't, but hegemonic masculinity is basically this way to explain men's power over women. And it does this by promoting stereotypical heterosexual cisgender male views. Think the idea that men are chivalrous, that they don't show emotion, that they never cry, that they're very competitive and that they're always strong and can always, you know, withstand. Mm -hmm. And these ideas, of course, are very stereotypical, very, very conservative and traditional. But it's obviously really problematic for many reasons, including how it boxes men into tightly conformed spaces where they might feel pressured to like repress their emotions and to not express their femininity, things like Mm -hmm. that. And actually, some theorists even argue that hegemonic masculinity is linked to violence and violent traits that some men exhibit, which is explained by this whole theory. Hmm. But also, hegemonic masculinity is problematic for women because inherently, the idea of it places women as subordinate to men. And that's the real key here that I wanted to talk about because In terms of what we were talking about, medical education, we've come very far. However, medical education and medicine, like so many other fields, was created and started by men. Mm -hmm. And so my question is, what are some hurdles that we have to overcome as women, even today, that are a result of the male-dominated roots of our field? And maybe how does hegemonic masculinity into the way we interact with men in our field yeah my first thought when you're talking about all this when we were talking about the heels thing in episode two of trying to be as tall as a man that would have like definitely played into all that back when they were like women are gonna grow large heads in tiny bodies (laughs) literally become disfigured because they want to be a physician compared to like a man was built for it or something Mm -hmm. that idea that you have to be a man's stature but today i think it's still a big problem specifically specialties in medicine there are Mm -hmm. like the specialties that most females go into and and i was talking to my dad about this actually because when he was in medical school he knew a girl in his class who wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon everyone was like you can't do that you're like a small girl you're in there in the or like sawing bones in half definitely need to be a strong person in general that doesn't mean you have to be a man women can be strong but it's just the idea of no you can't do that and i guess she went on and is now an orthopedic surgeon and is great wow that but it's like that idea definitely still exists when you think of the macho pre-med guy He's definitely interested in orthopedic surgery. It is such a stereotype (laughs) that men fit. And I feel like that is even a problem for some men going into medical school. They feel like they have to fit a stereotype and are, they are even uncomfortable to go in the fields like pediatrics or something. Right. It's not quote, like as competitive kind of goes both ways and how that masculinity issue plays in medical school. But I think Women are faced it more bluntly, I guess, because you walk in and they're like, yeah. oh, you're here. You're going to go to pediatrics, right? And you're like, I mean, yeah, I'm interested in it, but it doesn't mean I'm destined for it. Right. Yeah. Thank you for already checking these boxes for me. Right. Appreciate it. Yeah. What I was thinking of in terms of this question at first was the fact that medical education and medical practice is tailored to men. Mm -hmm. Because it was created by men. And so the system inherently is like tailored to men. 
And I was actually reading this Journal of American Medical Association, an article mm-hmm. about why women don't choose surgical subspecialties. And there was two-ish reasons. One was that the hours are just really tough and women are expected to be the caregivers, the family-oriented ones. Right. And so that demotivates them from going into a surgical subspecialty. For sure. But also, the second reason is that surgery is such a man's world. It's so tough to navigate that space because it's almost, they describe it as militant. They say that residency is super tough because your superiors are really hard on you in a way that they aren't in other specialties. And they just like attack you. And, you know, they like think that they're doing what's best for you. But I feel like that's such an antiquated way of thinking about it. And it's like verbal abuse and toxic. Yeah. And they think it's making you tougher. And that's such a product, I think, of hegemonic masculinity. It's yeah. this idea that you need to be tough. You need to be able to take what I'm dishing out on you. When in reality, there's absolutely no reason to do that. Yeah. I think it's and... the idea too of you need to be tough and stoic. I remember shadowing a surgeon and him just being like the most non-emotional guy he walks into the OR and he would tell me like, oh when you're in the OR like don't be afraid to yell at the nurses and you're the one in charge oh so God. make a point for them to know I think there's a better way to go about that where your team would actually like crazy. you it was crazy That's- and it's mm-hmm. I can see how females are discouraged from going into surgery because women definitely are more emotional than men and they don't try to hide it it's not anything to be ashamed of to be a right. more emotional human and I feel your emotions and it's actually probably more healthy in the long run Mm -hmm. for your mental health to be able to feel your emotions and process them and then move on I completely very important in residency to maintain your mental health because every other part of your life is controlled by your residency right it's just interesting that's a huge role in surgery yeah absolutely what also makes it tough is that there's no one to look up to the female physicians that can act as mentors are few and far between and even if they do exist in your spheres it's not that woman's job to mentor you of Mm -hmm. course like you would want a female mentor because you feel more comfortable and I'm sure there's so many amazing female surgeons or female physicians who want to mentor young women but it's just so tough to expect that of that woman right the idea that you don't represent whatever you identify as like you don't represent like the whole population so you shouldn't have to do it you know unless you want to hey everyone we just wanted to take a moment and pause here to talk briefly about something that happened after we recorded this episode but that is super relevant to women in surgery and the misogyny that they face in a recent article published in the journal of vascular surgery A group of researchers at the Boston Medical Center tried to classify the social media posts of trainees in vascular surgery as either professional or unprofessional based on several criteria, including unprofessional clothing. This group of nearly all male researchers went through trainees' social medias and marked photos of women in bikinis, consuming alcohol when not working, etc. And these photos were considered unprofessional. This started the trend of medkini on social media, where female healthcare providers have been posting photos of themselves in bikinis alongside photos of themselves saving people's lives, with the hashtag medkini as a way to fight back and bring awareness to the continual sexism and misogyny that plagues the medical field. 
We wanted to acknowledge this as two young women entering this field and we'll likely touch on it in future episodes as well. Okay, now we're back to it. So all of that just tying together into the next question, in terms of medical education, or at least what we understand or what our limited knowledge of medical education so far, mm-hmm. do you think that what that medical education values what women can bring to the field rather than what men used to only be able to bring? Right. I think, I mean, we just started medical school, so we don't have like much personal experience in this, I guess, yet. but. Mm-hmm. I, I think about how when Elizabeth Blackwell became a physician and just like how female physicians, people noticed that they were able to connect with their physicians better and mm. that, you know, the physicians were more compassionate and just better at the actual like person to person caring. And I think medicine has adopted that like bedside manner is yeah. super important is like a huge part of learning your clinical skills in medical school is something they look for when you apply to medical school. They want to make sure that you are a human who can interact with other humans. You know, that you're not this extremely stoic person who just closed off. And I feel like a lot of that comes from viewing the bedside manner that a lot of female physicians were more comfortable expressing when that wasn't a thing, you know? And yeah. like that is like a huge part of medical school now. It's no longer the, have you ever watched House? Where Dr. House doesn't even go in the room and meet his patient. It's very yeah. rare for him to meet oh his gosh. patient. Yeah, He doesn't want to meet his patient. To him, it messes up his diagnosis, whatever. He's a weird dude. <laughs> Great show though. Definitely should watch it if you haven't. But yeah, like that's not a thing. You could not just not meet your patient now. I don't know. I feel like that, like, yeah, that inhabits like a lot of female qualities. Yeah, I agree. That's where my head was going to is, and you touched on it before, like when you were talking about the stoicness and how like surgeons and physicians and like certain specialties are really cold and medicine was seen as that field, you know, where it's all about the facts and the science. And I feel like in my experience, just going through like applying to medical school and figuring out like what kind of physician or what kind of medical student I want to be, it's so much about your personality and what mm-hmm. you can bring to your interactions and how you can talk to patients. And it's not cold and calculating anymore. No, And not I at feel all. like a lot of that has come from this rise of women in medicine, or at least I want to say it has. Yeah, I feel like hopeful I, that it I have no idea if that's actually true, but that is, yeah, that's what my gut says. And you told me to trust my gut, so. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't ever listen to, don't listen to all the things I tell you, but <laughs> that one you can. Okay, good. Before we end, I guess I just wanted to ask how you think that we can apply this history to our lives, our futures like going into med school and knowing that medical school was set up for men and that like medicine has been built around a male body and just so just I guess having that in mind and not letting it discourage you like seeking out the things you want to do because you truly want to do them and not worrying about how society is going to think of you for not being the mom who wants to stay home with their kids or whatever yeah I agree with you I think it's really tough to set aside like what you know that you want to do and what society expects of you and how to navigate the way that those intertwine. Um, And I think that's something that's going to take a lot of personal work and growth because I know I have to do that. And every single woman who goes into the medical field or any field 
always has to do that. And that's something that men oftentimes don't think about because they are privileged in this way and they don't have to think about it. Yeah. So in terms of the road ahead, though, I'm thinking immediately, I'm really interested in meeting my med school class and just kind of figuring out what kind of people are in my class and particularly the men. I'm honestly really curious about what kind of peers I'm going to have. Like, are they going to be really collaborative? Like a lot of schools are pass fail, like there's no grades and, yep. and that's all to create this collaborative environment. So gunners are especially not welcome. It's like, you can leave, like, <laughs> we don't want you here. Cause if you're right. not here to help us, if you're out here for yourself, then I don't really know what the point is of keeping you around. Yeah. And I was also thinking like one last note on this question about like, what we do now going to medical school is like, Everyone in our class, I guess, that your gender does not affect like how what you should be going into and what you should care about. Your gender should not dictate like what you want to do in med school. And it also should be like reason for you to question like everything you're doing in med school of like how gender has affected like your education, like how you can try to like take that as a separate piece of what you're learning. I resonate with all of that. Okay, yeah. So if you are a male or female, or someone who identifies as a woman, or a man, or anything in between, you should subscribe to our podcast um, so that you can come back and learn all types of things about women in medicine. And then if you have the time and you love us, like we hope you do, um, you can leave a rating and review. Apple Podcasts is the best place for that. It's just where like they accumulate the most. So, you know, go, go do that. Go hit that button and review. Yeah. And then while you're hitting buttons, go onto our social medias and then follow us. And if you want to check out our show notes and our sources, you can go to our website for more information. Yeah. And lastly, here's a little shout out, as always, to the women who fought for us to be where we are today. And may we do the same for those who come after us. And we will see you guys for episode seven. Yeah. Amazing. See you next time. Bye-bye. Love you guys. Bye. Bye.